This is hell. The future ain't what it used to be. This is hell. We started this week by first discussing the exciting world of municipal bonds. Well, it may not be exciting. In fact, as award-winning writer Clark Randall admitted on our show, show, to be honest, how our cities are funded is really pretty boring. That is, until you recognize that those same bonds are underwriting police violence around the country while cities' social services suffer. We then moved on to a discussion with Matt King on big tech, the garbage and waste crisis they profit from and now want to make a killing through cleaning up the mess they created. A garbage crisis that has gotten so bad, they're now finding microparticles of plastics not only in breast milk, but human hearts. Like bondholders profiting from police violence, it's what happens under neoliberalism and putting profits before people, and it's pretty freaking frightening, especially in an era when we are facing planetary climate change. Despite all that, what do conservatives fear most? A burning planet? No. They fear new understandings mostly held by young people on sex, sexuality, and gender identity. The world's on fire, but what's crucial for conservatives to address is ideas on gender identity. It seems absurd, but like I said, the future ain't what it used to be. The problem for frightened conservatives is, turns out the past ain't what it used to be either. And as always, new ideas emerge, and old ideas, as our guest today points out, are suddenly seen as stupid, ridiculous, backwards, and laughable. The idea that being trans is anything new, other than the term and its definition, is key to the conservative understanding of their binary world. But as history shows, that's definitely not the case. As our guest will point out, this is not the first reorganization of gender and sexuality in U.S. history. It's happened before. Remember Abe Lincoln and that guy he slept with? You know why that didn't make headlines? Because it wasn't weird back then. It was the norm. Yup, gender-normative homosexuality was all the rage. Meanwhile, as late as 1901, heterosexuality was still being defined as an abnormal or perverted appetite toward the opposite sex. Our guest in a few is writer, historian, and curator Hugh Ryan. We are very happy to have him on the show. He wrote the Boston Review article, Who's Afraid of Social Contagion? Our ideas about sexuality and gender have changed before, and now they're changing again. He was the author of The Women's House of Detention, A Queer History of a Forgotten Prison, which is the winner of the 2023 Stonewall Book Award, Israel Fishman Award for Nonfiction from the Publishing Triangle of the American Library Association, as well as the 2022 Warren Johansson Award from the W.A. Percy Foundation. His first book, When Brooklyn Was Queer, won a 2020 New York City Book Award, was a New York Times Editor's Choice in 2019, and was a finalist for the Randy Schultz and Lambda Literary Awards. He was honored with the 2020 Alan Barabay Prize from the American Historical Association. In 2019 through 2021, he worked on the Hidden Voices LGBTQ plus stories in U.S. history curricular materials for the New York City Department of Education. 2019, Hugh was honored by the Brooklyn Historical Society, the Committee on LGBT History of the American Historical Association, and the Brooklyn Borough President for his work on the queer history of Brooklyn. Currently, Hugh teaches nonfiction in the MFA program at the Bennington Writers Seminar, Writing Seminars. As a curator in 2010, Hugh founded the Pop-Up Museum of Queer History, 
a grassroots organization dedicated to helping local communities create engaging exhibitions rooted in their own experiences. Through Pop-Up, he has cre- curated uh, shows around the country, has given lectures and, lead wor- and led workshops on queer history, AIDS activism, and museum praxis at museums, colleges, community centers, and punk houses of all kinds. At his website, Hughes says the proudest moment of his life might be the day that Columbia history professor George Chauncey, author of the 1994 classic Gay New York, told Hugh, you're making history cool. Find out more about Hugh at HughRyan.org. Follow Hugh on Twitter.com at Hugh underscore Ryan, but really follow him on Mastodon at HughRyan at Mastodon.lol. Most importantly, support Hugh's work on Patreon at patreon.com slash Hugh Ryan. And we're looking forward to making history cool again with Hugh in a few. Producing is Dan Kugler. Dan, how are you? How's your week going so far? So far, so good. I um, was well, always a fran- fan of The Sopranos, but I didn't never watch the last two seasons. Oh, no I, kidding. Yeah, and I finally finished uh, on Monday night, and it's really a special pleasure to get mo- mostly attached to like a whole set of characters over you know, weeks and weeks and weeks and watch them, spe- you know, one by one killed off. So <laughs> been uh, kind of down, <laughs> honestly. What did you think of the end? Because that was the big thing when the, when the show ended a few years ago. People really hated the ending. Yeah, at first I really hated it. And then I kind of thought about how it was set up in, based on previous conversations and stuff. And I accepted it as a you know, uh, artistic choice that made sense. Uh, All right. It's, you know, I don't... Not being upset about it, then. Spoiler. Yeah. Uh, It was, if first, it you know, it didn't have the emotional kick of a more obvious ending, but it it worked. Because Uh, it was ambiguous. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So my week was not going well, as I'm afraid that my hernia surgery may have failed and I may need to go under the knife yet again. So far, the only symptom I've had is pain at the site of the surgery. I'm not running a fever and I have no other symptoms, but even contemplating the thought of having having yet another operation, which I think would be my either my sixth or seventh in the last year and a half, is freaking, it's just terrifying to me because I'm still suffering from PTSD due to the several other procedures and stretches and of hospitalization. And if you haven't been in a U.S. hospital in a while, It ain't pretty. But more important than what may be nothing more than paranoia mixed with hypochondria, Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? What makes you so special anyway? (laughs) I love that pause. It reminds me of Paul Harvey, the person with our favorite answer to this That's week's question. the one and only time I hope to be compared <laughs> to Paul Harvey. Harvey. Well, you know, the uh, guest on Monday show, Clark Randall, he is the Harvey. Uh, the, Paul Harvey's wife has a fellowship at Washington University for American Cultural Studies, and that's the fellowship that he's on right now, which is crazy. We should get him to do an impression (laughs) of Paul Harvey. Yes. 
The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, tote bag, face covering, face mask, coffee mug, all of our stuff you can see right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, uh, including all of our new stuff, which we revealed at last month's uh, This Is Hell 27th anniversary party. And you can pick up some of our stuff if you drop by here during office hours tonight our weekly meet and greet that's really a drink and think happens every Wednesday uh, evening beginning at about 6 at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now Carrie's Lounge in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood located at 2251 West Devon Avenue between Bell and Oakley it's the bar with the tuk-tuk out front that has Bob Dobbs face painted on it and there are new murals on uh, Carrie's Lounge's facade one of a prowling cat and the other of a hookah-smoking caterpillar. Seriously, you cannot miss the place. If you do drop by tonight, you can check out This Is Art, the ongoing art show up here in the Second Story Studios Gallery, which opened during our 27th anniversary party and will be closing in just a few short weeks. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can post it on our Patreon page, Discord. If you're a member of our Facebook group, Welcome to the Hellhole, you can even post it there. Or you can email it to us during today's show at thisishellradio at gmail.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth. Dan, what's Jeff doing during this week's Moment of Truth? Uh, Jeff is weaving a tale not from Celts, but Celt-ish. Coming up, the conservative fear of a differently gendered planet. Dan shares more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you what's happening on Thursday's bonus Patreon podcast for Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. And following this week's moment of truth, we will be announcing the winner of this week's question. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. And conservatives swear that any shift from a binary understanding of sex, sexuality, and gender identity will definitely lead to the end of civilization and the world. Problem is, their understanding of sex, sexuality, and gender, which they believe is natural and normal and real, is none of the above, and recent history proves it. Here to give us a better understanding of the histor- history of gender, sex, and sexuality, writer, historian, and curator Hugh Ryan wrote the Boston Review article, Who's Afraid of Social Contagion? Our ideas about sexuality and gender have changed before. And now they're changing again. Welcome to This Is Hell, Hugh. Hey, Chuck. Thanks for having me. Uh, make sure that you show your support for Hugh's work on Patreon at patreon.com slash Hugh Ryan. This is absolutely fascinating work. And now I want to have gender historian after gender historian on the show. You begin by writing that earlier this year, Gallup published some incredible statistics showing that Gen Z is our queerest generation yet, with nearly 20% identifying somewhere under the broad LGBTQIA plus umbrella. Some two-thirds of the group, 13% of Gen Z, identify as bisexual. About 2% of Zoomers identify as trans. When I was first coming out, you write in the early 90s, by contrast, one in 10 was a common gay slogan. In fact, 10% t-shirts were common in the gay community. Back in the 1990s, the corner video store in my neighborhood was owned and operated by a gay man who would regularly uh, wear a 10% t-shirt. One time we were talking and he told me that he thought a far more accurate number identifying at the time as gay would be closer to 40%. 
Does that nearly 20% identifying somewhere under the broad LGBTQIA plus umbrella surprise you in any way? Did you think it was more, less? And do you think you would have come out any earlier had you known it wasn't 10%, but it was more like 20%? You know, I don't think I even knew it was 10% when I came out. When <laughs> I came out, I was 16, and it was the mid-90s, and I had never met an out gay person in my life. So, um, yeah, some, some statistics, any statistics, any queer visibility at all probably would have been helpful for me, and not just for me, but everyone around me. When you come out... Your whole family and friends, they go through an experience too. And in the 90s, we were all going through it pretty blind. As for the statistics today and whether they surprise me, I mean, I think what surprises me most is that we think we can get an accurate statistic on this, that we know there's a baseline. You know, you hear all these um, kind of like centrist commentators who I think are pretty right on these issues who are like oh my gosh you know it's a, a disappearing lesbians too many trans people everyone's being and i'm like when was the right number right when was this like perfect magical moment when the right number of people were coming out or identifying as queer i'm not surprised that 20 percent of gen z identifies as queer from my interactions with them will it be more in the future maybe hopefully i mean i think that everyone who wants to come out should come out eventually so we'll see where we're headed but i think for me the bigger surprise is not around people coming out or identifying as queer, but the ways in which Gen Z are rewriting the categories, coming up with new ways to describe what they're experiencing that aren't caught by our ideas of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, etc. So just going back to the Gallup poll real quickly, the assumption is here that we all have a shared understanding of what it means to be gay, what it means to be queer, what it means to be LGBTQIA+. To what degree do you think we do have any kind of shared understanding or definition of those terms? I think we have plural shared understandings, right? We all grew up with ideas of LGBT in this country in the last, you know, 50 years. Uh, and those ideas aren't wrong, but they're limited, right? They define sexuality from the outside. They simply say there is one factor to describing your sexual orientation. Let's stick with that for a moment. Uh, that factor is, are you attracted to opposite sex people, same sex people, or both? But the way that that attraction functions can be really different for different people within those groups. And the people who define these categories, largely straight, cis, rich, white people in the early 20th centuries, uh, didn't really care about those experiences. When they defined what it meant to be lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender, it was at a time when they thought everything about your personality was determined by your body. They didn't ask about experiences. They didn't ask about feelings. They weren't interested in what we today would call identity. So, of course, those categories are really limited. They're not incorrect. They just don't capture a full description of how we experience sexuality or desire or eroticism or sex. And I can see how the people of that time would see think that they were approaching this in a scientific way, and therefore it was an objective way, and that's why they would have accepted all of these definitions. Do you think that this was all a process, or at least an attempt, at being scientific and objective about this, despite it blowing up in their face because it's just hetero people who are making decisions about what homosexuality is? Well, yes and no. 
of course they were trying to be scientific and objective. I think most people who identify themselves as scientists are trying to be that way, but they were just as caught up in their own biases and limitations as scientists today. In particular, most of these people were really connected to the eugenics movement, which was a movement that basically saw all of um, non-white people as a threat to whiteness and all queer or disabled people as a threat to whiteness. It was this idea that we could breed better white people through science. But to understand how to do that, we had to understand all of the different kinds of people that exist and all the different ways that we could not end up reproducing, right? So these original sexologists, a lot of them are coming at this from a perspective of queer people, broadly writ, whether that's trans or intersex or gay, are a problem that needs to be understood to fix the white race. Now, eventually that goes away. We get sexologists in the 30s, 40s, and 50s who are moving away from those kind of ideas like Alfred Kinsey. But the original ideas themselves are, are truly embedded in this understanding of a threat to whiteness and trying to define the groups that are dangerous to white American society. That's really revealing that our understanding of homosexuality is grounded in late 19th century, early 20th century eugenics. You write that conservatives have been pushing two related theories to explain this uptick in people identifying as LGBTQIA+. First, there's the social contagion theory, which holds that in a world drowning in representations of heterosexuality and cisgenderness, meeting a single trans person, reading a book with a bisexual character in it, or encountering non-binary pronouns on TikTok can totally destabilize the identity of an otherwise normal child. It's amazing how fragile heterosexuality and cisness are in this formulation, almost like they're socially manufactured identities backed by huge amounts of ideological infrastructure, peer pressure, media recruitment, and social policing. Well, I guess conservatives aren't wrong about everything. So you, so uh, with that kind of social contagion, it would be easy for, as you describe it, a world drowning in, drowning in uh, representations of heterosexuality and cisgenderness as the social cont uh, contagion destabilizing children. How susceptible then are, or how susceptible is gender identity to popular representations, whether that's hetero or not? Do you think that we are impacted, affected by those representations. I mean, this is one of those things that just you have to laugh, except that the stakes are so high that the laughing is really gallows humor. At the same time, conservatives and the people in the center and on the left who are following their lead on this debate, which, which unfortunately is a lot of people, are holding these two ideas in their head. One, our cisgenderedness is natural, normal, correct, and being trans is rare and unlikely. But at the same time, any exposure to a single trans person can suddenly destabilize you and cause you to become trans. And it's like, how can you believe both of these things at the same time without seeing the inherent bias and weaknesses in your own arguments? Of course, we are social people who depend on role models to help us understand our feelings. But our role models don't create those feelings. They simply give us ways to express them, languages, ideas of who we could be or who we aren't, right? So yes, there is a world and a re reality to this idea that having role models, whether that's queer people in the media or in government or in your family or in your textbooks, will help you to understand yourself. 
But this idea that a single trans person's identity might destabilize the identity of an entire kindergarten class is laughable. It is conspiracy theory at its best. So do you think this kind of, of seeing gender identity, sexuality as social contagion, do you think this is grounded in the late 19th century, early 20th century ideas of homosexuality being a disease? I think absolutely. And I think also we want to always destabilize the things we dislike, right? Instead of asking ourselves questions like, why is it a bad thing? in any way, you know, why would this kind of contagion be quote unquote bad? Because if you go down that road, eventually you have to get to a place where they say trans people are gross or trans people are awful, because that's the end point of all of this, right? Is they don't want people to be trans. So these ideas of social contagion, they're just a sort of more acceptable way. They put up this idea that we're protecting innocent children who will otherwise be confused. It's a straw man argument. I mean, we see that all the time. You know, folks like Matt Walsh just tweeting the other day in support of um, Ramaswamy saying that, yes, ban all transition for people under 18. And then we go on to banning transition for all people over 18. This is the Christian fascist who J.K. Rowling praised, right? This is the end goal. All this stuff in between these fake arguments they're putting up, they don't care about these things. What they care about are eliminating trans people and eventually all queer people. You point out that another conservative theory sometimes offered in tandem with the contagion idea, and sometimes in slight opposition to it, is the snowflake theory, the idea that Zoomers are confused or pretending or signaling solidarity or just want attention, and thus their identities, pansexual, ace as an asexual, gender flux, NB, and so on, aren't even real. The thing, One of the things that just bugs me about that is snowflake is a term uh, from the 19th century that abolitionists used against white supremacists that would any time that they would challenge their white privilege or white supremacy, they would melt like a snowflake. This is a term that's been co-opted by the far right. And it's just something that really bugs me. But the idea is this is all pretense, something to gain attention or get clicks. And that these are, uh, are moments of acting out, rebelling, not conforming to what they see as social norms, norms within which they li live. How is the LGBTQIA plus community understood, understood when not being hetero is seen as not being real? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a way that, you know, we destabilize identity and we hold the community back. I, I want to go back for one quick second to that Gallup poll, right? It mentions that one of the biggest explosions uh, in, in identification is among people identifying as bisexual. Well, I, I don't know how old you are, Chuck, and I'm, I'm not going to make any guesses to get myself in trouble, but I grew up in the 80s and 90s. And let me tell you, we were pretty profoundly told that bisexuality did not exist and that there were whole categories of people who would uh, sleep with people of the same sex but didn't really count as bisexual. We've been discounting bisexual and trans experiences and intersex experiences, broadly writ, for decades upon decades on top of the slightly less discounting of gay and lesbian identity. So, of course, we're seeing some growth in these areas because these areas have traditionally been ignored or said they don't exist or like the conservatives are saying now with all trans youth that it's simply made up.
So you also point out that uh, you write of the conservative snowflake theory that those who are LGBTQIA plus are not being real. Quote, in part, this is just another version of the contagion fear, but there's something else going on, something a little more interesting, which is in a roundabout way, which can help uh, help to explain why you think we are asking some of the wrong questions about this uptake in, uh, uptake in queer identification. This particular queer phobic explanation adds additional requirements to clear the bar of queerness. It has to last this long, or you have to be attracted to this many people of the same sex, or you have to feel this way from birth. To you, what explains why conservatives, they seem to be a little obsessed about this, why conservatives want to put those kinds of limits and parameters on gender identity and sexuality? Why is it so important to their hetero or cisness to create a set of rules determining sexuality or gender identity legitimacy? I mean, I think largely it's about control, right? Social control. These are the same people who are pushing to control women's bodies by banning abortion, right? <laughs> These are people who want to control what your child is even able to learn in a public school. These are acts of control. And it's very easy when you hold up a child and you say, oh, this child is endangered to get people to stop thinking critically, particularly when we talk about this, you know, trans youth debate and everybody's worried about uh, children who will, you know, change their mind one day. It's just it's it's so funny to me almost because when you look they one can't find those kids there are very few public detransitioners who regret what they chose and those few are taken around the country by these conservatives you know they're they're really uh mined for everything they can get out of them when the truth is we look at gender care gender affirming care and over and over again it is positive for the youth who receive it right they are so afraid of trans people, of gender, of freedom, of the interaction between men and women. I mean, we have presidential candidates who are saying, oh, I wouldn't even be alone with a woman who's not my wife. These people are desperately afraid of the real world. You want to talk about snowflakes. Like you said, in the 19th century, snowflakes really was being applied to these white slave owners. The real snowflakes today are these conservatives. There's absolutely no question about it. Uh, you write that in some ways this is a discussion humanity is always having, and these ideas are constantly shifting over time. So is this conversation on sex, sexuality, and gender identity, is it ever changing? And if so, why do conservatives see it as so earth-shattering if it happens on a historically somewhat regular basis? I mean, I do think that this change is constantly happening, but I think part of the change that we experienced in the mid-20th century, this real time of um, homophobia, of misogyny, of traditionalism, of a return to the kitchens uh, for women, a return to the factories for men, the heterosexual family, all of this in the 1950s, part of what was required of this kind of homophobia, right? This is the moment where homophobia is really coming in. Before World War II, we're still sort of sorting out these Victorian ideas. What is it okay for a quote-unquote real man to do versus what insinuates that he's gay? Um, but once we get into the 50s, we really have to shut all that down. They have to destroy this whole earlier history because it doesn't make any sense. If we're going to say that gay people are these newfangled thing that have never existed before, we have to erase all evidence of same-sex desires in the 19th century. If we're going to say that transitioning, however broadly we want to define that, is something that only starts to happen in like 1997, then we have to ignore all of the people who socially transitioned and medically transitioned in the 
the ways that were possible in the late 18th and early 19th century. Drag was huge in the 19th century in America, right? We have to ignore all of this history in order to make the conservative ideas that start to swing up really in America post-World War II make any sense. You mentioned that the further back you go, the more radically different American ideas about sex, sexuality, and gender become. Conservatives insist hetero and cisness dominating all other identities has always been the case, that historically anything other than the binary of cis male and female is relatively very, very new. How opposed are conservatives to what you do studying the history of American ideas on sex, sexuality, and gender? Do conservatives fear the study of such history? And if so, what does it say about conservatives and their views on sex, sexuality, and gender when they fear the history of American ideas on those subjects? I think a lot of them don't fear it because they are so ignorant. They have no idea. It's like, what is that? The Dunning-Kruger Dunning -Kruger syndrome, where your ignorance is so large, you mistake it for knowledge, right? They have no idea what American history is really like, which, of course, is why they're trying to ban the actual teaching of it as far and wide as they can. I think they would be afraid of it if they understood it or looked at it honestly. I mean, you look in the 19th century and you see people exercising same-sex desires uh, and it not necessarily getting them marked as a different kind of person. It, it's not that people weren't in love with people of the same sex or had the same desires for people of the same sex, but in terms of identity in America in the 19th century, it didn't matter in the same way. It was just part of gender. There was no separate idea about sexual orientation. That was just how well you performed your gender. And within both gender categories that they saw, men and women, there were places for what we would call homosexuality or bisexuality. They were uh, men who were so manly that they couldn't help themselves but do things like have sex with another man or have um, you know uh, sex with too many women, right? That was a place where manly men could be seen having what we would see as homosexual experiences. Women were seen as so sort of pliable in their sexuality that anytime a group of women got together, well, they could end up having sex with each other because women didn't have a lot of sexual orientation. It just sort of happened to them, right? The Victorians understood same-sex desire. They just didn't think that it mattered all that much unless it was combined with being improperly gendered. So not just trans as we might think of it today, but as being too effeminate if you're a man or too butch if you were a woman. The That is where we saw an idea of queerness in the 19th century. So sexuality just didn't really exist back then. You have this amazing term that I, I, I just have to quote your writing on this. You point out that this is the reason I study history, not out of some fetishization of the past, but because studying the past frees me from, and I love this phrase, the tyranny of the present, because it, because it is the air we breathe. The present always seems nat natural, correct, and inevitable. But when I look back 200 years, you write, I see a world and a queer community vastly different from our own. The tyranny of the present. Do you think that always exists and does it vary to degrees? For instance, do you think we are currently in a state where the tyranny of the present is any more or less tyrannical than it has been in the past or even the recent past that you've experienced? Is the present any more or less tyrannical than it has been historically? 
I would say um, in a in a large frame, no. I think that the present is always tyrannical. We have a very hard time seeing the past as real and valid and not just a bunch of stupid people not having our ideas or pretending not to have our ideas. And we're even worse, I think, at imagining the future. Uh, now, I do think we are specifically sliding towards fascism right now, which is a very specific form of tyranny that is beyond this kind of like knowledge tyranny, this epistemic tyranny. So in that sense, yes, I think right at this particular moment, we are sliding towards a more tyrannical present. But I think in general, we have a very hard time imagining that the past has anything to say about who we are today. You also write that we're in a moment of great change, but it's not unprecedented. In fact, I think we're going through a great reorganization of sexuality and gender. The second great reorganization the United States has experienced. And I loved how great reorganization is capitalized. To understand mm -hmm. what's happening now, we need to go back to the late 1800s, where we'll find not only an instructive parallel to what we are experiencing today, as you've been mentioning with the Victorians, but also the roots of our very ideas of what it means to be lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. How did the people, do, or do we know how the people of the United States reacted to the last great reorganization, as you call it, back in the late 1800s? Do we know if the conservative fear was similar? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we can see these debates playing out in newspapers, in scientists, in um, journals, in lawmakers. Uh, we can play, see it playing out here in the U.S. and across the world. <laughs> I'm going to take a moment to like be really pedantic. We're going to jump back to the 19th century, and I'm going to explain exactly what I'm talking about. Okay. So early 1800s in America, we are a rural country, right? About 4% of people live in cities. By the end of the 1900s, about 40% of people live in cities. And this changes everything. It was really easy to think that there was no such thing as a gender normative homosexual when people were so spread out. But people come to cities and they start to see each other and they start to see commonalities among themselves, especially in cities that are full of laborers who are divided into men doing certain kinds of labor and women doing certain kinds of labor. These are people who have left their families, left their homes, left their home countries. They're being introduced to all different kinds of mores. They start to see each other and form communities. Uh, we can see this like in the poetry of Walt Whitman. He, in the 1850s, is really writing about the experiences of men who desire other men. He's even trying to invent words for them in the book Leaves of Grass, camarados, he calls them. And he calls their love adhesiveness, right? He's trying to define the existence of a community that is realizing it exists because of urbanization. That's the first great reorganization. And what it does is once we begin to understand that there are people who are in our eyes, gender normative and sex normative, right? They wanna be manly men, they have bodies like manly men, they've always been manly men, etc. who want other manly men or other feminine men. Suddenly we have to break apart the queer idea of the 19th century, which was generally called the invert, which was an idea that's like, kind of like what we think about being trans and intersex sort of mixed together. Well, now we know that there are people who desire other people of the same sex who are not trans or intersex. So sexologists freak out and they start to define all of these different categories. We end up picking out lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender and intersex as the ones we'll move forward with. But these people are also defining things like the identity of the woman who likes to be sexually aroused with hat pins. That was considered a standalone identity. Pickpockets in the 19 teens were considered a biological class, the way that we might think about homosexuals, right? So that's the 19th century. 
we go from being rural to urban. And in the course of that, a group of people who we would call gender normative homosexuals discover each other. Through that discovery, they start to see they're not the same as people we might call trans or intersex. And all these sexologists start to pay attention to them. These ideas really explode in the 30s, 40s, and 50s when World War II, the Committee for the Study of Sex Variants, Alfred Kinsey, all of these people promote these ideas. That makes sense? Yes, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, you also write that uh, conservatives. Wait, are... Sorry, that was. Let me just finish. So that's that's part one. That's oh, okay. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Second part. So in the end of the twentieth century, this kind of social reorganization, what urbanity did at the end of the nineteenth century, the internet does at the end of the twentieth century. Suddenly, communities of people who did not have access to each other before were able to discuss their experiences around desire, sex, and gender, the things we call identity, the things that were left out of the schema of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender identity. Start of the 1990s, only 14% of America has the internet. Today, 80%, which is the same percentage that lives in cities. And this is the cause of the second great reorganization, right? It's a change in social relations. It's almost Marxist, honestly. It's a change in how we live. And that change in how we live produces changes of the categories that we live in. So we had one reorganization at the end of the 19th century because of urbanization. The end of the 20th century, we had another one because of the internet. And we are now in that moment like the early 20th century, where the crack up is coming, right? In the early 20th century, these changes had kind of their um, apotheosis and nadir all at the same time in what became the Holocaust, right? These eugenic ideas. We're not there yet, but we are certainly sliding towards fascism. So those are the parallels that I see between the first great reorganization and the current great reorganization. We are speaking with writer, historian, and curator Hugh Ryan, who wrote the Boston Review article, Who's Afraid of Social Contagion? And this, so far, has just been a fascinating conversation. As fascinating as your writing is, Hugh, sh uh, please show your support for Hugh's work on Patreon at patreon.com slash Hugh Ryan. You write the conservatives. Chuck, I'm going to hire you to do this for me everywhere. You are the best at this. My God, I can never even remember to tell people what I have a Patreon. Thank you. <laughs> You're well, very welcome. It's only because we have a Patreon and people should subscribe to it at patreon.com slash this is hell. <laughs> so Hugh, you write the conservatives are blind to the fact that these identities have shifted radically around them, making space for more ways to be queer and thus making space for more people under the queer umbrella. Instead of being groomed into these categories, young people are redefining the categories to fit their experiences, thanks in large part as the history shows to the internet. And when it comes to this grooming idea, it just reminds me of the myth of stranger danger that started in the 1980s and has really had a horrible effect on American society. What happens when young people's ideas on sexuality and gender identity are seen as the result of being victims of grooming, rather than what you argue they are, champions of their own understandings of their sexuality. Why victimize them? What's the point in victimizing them? Is this just another means of control, or is it more than that? I think it's twofold. It is a means of control of these very young people, right? It's a way of telling them your bodies are wrong, your ideas are wrong, your mind is wrong, and you need to submit to our understandings of the world. So in that sense, yes, it is about controlling young people. But the grooming part of it is actually also about controlling adults and pathologizing adult queer people and our allies, which, of course, is the same thing I heard decades ago, right? You had to watch out for gay teachers. They were going to molest you, and that would make you gay, right? It's the same fear just repackaged around trans people 
specifically, and it's being used to attack and control trans adults. Otherwise, fairly intelligent people out there in the media ecosphere, especially in whatever Elon Musk is calling it now, have this idea that trans activists are particularly awful or violent. Uh, and this goes from like J.K. Rowling, who said that the trans movement as the biggest cover for pedophiles uh, in the world today to folks like um, I was just watching a you know a Twitter interaction happening between those folks like Kevin Drum and Jesse Signal and Michael Powell all agreeing that Glad putting out a banner in front of the New York Times calling their transphobic reporting transphobic was aggressive and attacking and uniquely aggressive, right? They're trying to get across this idea of the conservatives, and it is working, that trans advocates and their allies are uniquely awful. And that goes into this grooming idea, and it is the same thing that has been done against queer people for decades. You mentioned that to these Victorians, as your point we were discussing earlier, neither heterosexuality nor homosexuality, nor homosexuality would have made much sense. To understand heterosexuality, you have to be able to imagine a normative sexual state that men and women could both experience. But to Victorians, the desires of men and women were nothing alike, which is why even in 1901, heterosexuality was still being defined as an abnormal or perverted appetite toward the opposite sex, a shared disease condition made sense. Men and women could both have the same crazy, but not a shared normal. Do we know if this abnormal or perverted appetite toward the opposite sex, did that live in the shadows? Were heterosexuals persecuted in any way that, say, the LGBTQIA plus community is persecuted today? You know, this is one of those areas where the word has remained, but the meaning has shifted. So at the time when we're defining heterosexuality that way, bisexual means what we mean by intersex today, not attracted to people of two you know, sexes, but having both sexes in your own body. So the word heterosexual at that time first gets defined as being, um, it's almost what we would think of as like a, a nymphomania, which is what it gets called when it's specifically women. Um, it's this idea of an obsession with sex, which particularly in women was seen as wrong, but in men was also seen as, you know, dangerous too. You could be hypersexual. So heterosexuality, it, it takes a while for this idea that there is a normative state of desire that men and normal men and normal women both have, which is desire for the opposite sex, right? You have to have some sense that men and women are the same in order for that to make any sense. And the Victorians just didn't. They did not think men and women were the same in the body, mind, soul, experience, desire, any of that. This idea of a shared normative state called heterosexuality made no sense to them. But you do mention gender normative homosexuality, which is probably a phrase, term that people haven't heard before. How did gender normative homosexuality exist in the Victorian age? Well, that's what we would call it. That's right, a, right. a differentiation I want to make right now. Because again, they did not see this. Sexuality simply was not a thing. A person who we would see as gender normative homosexual might have been any guy, might have been Abe Lincoln. Who knows? These were people who had desires for the same sex, but because they were normally gendered, the Victorian world around them did not separate them out in any way, except in certain rare cases where their sexuality was in some way brought to public attention and used to demonize them or arrest them. Th those things did happen, right? It's not that sex between men or sex between women was not problematized by some people. It's just that it did not have a set and standard meaning until 
in urban places, those people began to see each other and understand that the desire to have sex with someone of the same sex was a commonality that was separate from being a man or being a woman or being an invert. And you mentioned that uh, of the late uh, 1800s gender normative homosexuals, such behavior didn't yet matter in the same way as it does today, as you were pointing out, because sexuality was not understood as a standalone identity separate from gender, meaning that who you slept with was just one part of your large ab- larger ability to be a proper Victorian man or woman, which also had racial, religious, and economic dimensions. Did people simply not identify with self-identify with whatever sexuality they engaged in did they not believe that it was their identity was they didn't even think about identity in the way we do today see that's really important identity as being part of your body freud had yet to come along and say personality is dependent on your experiences and your brain this idea of identity was almost beyond them in a certain sense it just didn't quite yet exist Right. So there's this great case, and I I talk about it a little bit in uh, that article and in my book, When Brooklyn Was Queer. There's this uh, boxer named Young Griffo, totally famous in the 19th century, gets arrested for raping a 13-year-old boy in his training gym on Coney Island. And he gets found guilty of sodomy, and he's given a very light sentence. And the judge says to him, I don't think there's anything weird about you. You're just so exuberant. You're so manly. You can't help yourself. Right. So they had a classification for men who had certain kinds of sex with other men or boys. They had an understanding of it. It existed. They acknowledged it. But it did not necessarily make that person a different kind of person the way our idea of sexual orientation does. But when they do eventually come up with these labels, uh, you write this is a long and messy transition. It wasn't until the 1930s, for instance, that a group called the Committee for the Study of Sex Variants firmly declared that after rigorous research, they could find no evidence of consistent physical differences in the bodies of homosexuals or trans people, though they didn't quite use those terms. That was a full 50 years after the first definitions of homosexuality appeared. If you've ever wondered why homosexuals seem to appear out of the woodwork in the late ni- or late 1800s, this is why. It's not because they were closeted before, but because they didn't exist, at least not as homosexuals. But homosexuals, as you point out, clearly did exist before they were labeled as such. Was that kind of labeling... Well, I, I pl- want to push back there really quickly, though, because I'm not sure homosexuals existed. People with same-sex desires totally existed. But for many people in the 19th century, that desire was not incompatible with different kinds of what to us might look like heterosexual desires, but weren't necessarily, right? Desire is a constant across communities around the world through history, as is cross-gender identification. But this idea of heterosexuality as a standalone identity defined and permanent around sexual object choice is like a 20th century white European American idea. Right. It's not universal. So was was that eventual labeling, would you consider that a blessing or a curse? Oh, none of the above. <laughs> I think that we're constantly labeling things. I don't want to make it sound like the 19th century was this like amazing time for queer people. They had labels too. We're always sort of fractaling forward. We're always changing to meet the social conditions of the day. Queer people are simply part of life. We're part of nature. We're part of the world. You can't get rid of us without getting rid of everything else. We'll be different depending on how the world is different, just like people who aren't queer will be different. But this idea that like one set of labels is necessarily good, another one is bad, they all have weaknesses, uh, particularly, I think, when we start to see them not as 
kind of placeholders for large groups that are diverse within them. Sort of this way we might think about um, identifying as a Democrat, right? We understand that within that label, there are wide varieties between people, but it, it's useful at a distance to give us certain information. I think we should start to think about sexual orientation um, and gender identity in, in sort of similar ways useful categories, but it doesn't explain everything. It's not necessarily permanent, and it's different for the different people inside of it. I, I believe someday down the line, we'll understand that for some people, yes, sexual orientation is the most important part in determining who they have sex with, and it never changes throughout their lives. And for other people, it's not that important. And for other people, it will change throughout their lives. I think what I would like to see is, is not so much a getting rid of labels, but as an understanding that the labels are approximate and that they capture as best as we and an individual are able to express our feelings filtered through the culture that we live in in this moment. And they might change or they might not. And either one of those things is okay. When it comes to the two great reorganizations happening with urbanization here in the United States and then again happening with the internet, so not only to be queer, but did the internet and urbanization change everyone's understandings of themselves? When we reorganize, do we reconsider who we are and who we want to be or can be within the current organizing? Does our self-identity, not only gender or sexual identity, change when we reorganize? Because there's a really good like there's a really high likelihood that we're going to be reorganizing again with climate change. Yeah. I mean, I think everything changes, right? Our ideas of sexuality, when you go back, these same people, like I said, they were all, not all, but mostly white supremacists who were making these definitions. And they excluded black people from most of these categories entirely. Uh, they thought they simply did not have the same kinds of identities as we would call them today. Um, so that's an obvious shift in which anyone, whether you're queer or not, uh, is being considered differently, right? I think that when these changes happen, they change the world. And queer people change because of that global change. There's never a moment where like we're changing on our own and, and quote unquote straight people are remaining the same because we're part of a whole. We can only change by, by moving the categories and, and we're surrounded by heterosexuality in this moment. So any change to us necessitates a change to heterosexuality. Does that make sense? It does. It makes a lot of sense. And so does your entire article and your writing in general. You write, I didn't think ideas about being LGBT will go, go away. I don't think ideas about being LGBT will go away, but I do think they'll adapt. We'll add terms, maybe ditch some too. We'll start to see sexuality and gender as multidimensional aspects of our lives, which I think is really important. Not simple and permanent binaries, at least not for everyone. New ways of thinking will take hold, and the time before those new ideas will seem stupid, ridiculous, backward, and laughable. So what attracts so many to want to go back to those times that were, as you described, stupid, ridiculous, backwards and laughable? Why is there a desire to pretend they were anything but stupid, ridiculous, backwards and laughable? <laughs> I think it's a lot of things. I think power and control and fear. I mean, particularly right now, you mentioned climate change. I think there is a growing sense in the world of a limiting of possibility, a closing down of what the future can or might be, a desire to protect the self, right? And that's dangerous. I think that it makes sense given the world we're facing, but it means that some people I think are becoming very attuned to this idea that there are, are people we need to destroy, right? That to, to survive, that there's a limitedness uh, and I think that that's that's dangerous. 
One last question for you, Hugh. We have been speaking with writer, historian, and curator Hugh Ryan, who wrote the Boston Review article, Who's Afraid of Social Contagion? Hugh is the author of The Women's House of Detention, A Queer History of a Forgotten Prison that you should definitely check out. It's cited a few times in this article. It's the winner of the 2023 Stonewall Book Award, Israel Fishman Award for Nonfiction from the Publishing Triangle of the American Library Association, as well as the 2022 Warren Johansson Award from the W.A. Percy Foundation. You can find out more about Hugh at HughRyan.org. You can follow Hugh on Twitter at Hugh underscore Ryan, but really follow him on Mastodon at HughRyan at Mastodon.lol. And most importantly, show your support for Hugh's work on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Hugh Ryan. One last question for you, Hugh. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You conclude towards the end of your article. You write that when I read that Gallup poll about queer Gen Z, I thought of Renee and Bernice, a couple of women who were interviewed in a prison in 1949 about their relationship. Decades ago, I first started uh, researching queer history because I wanted a mirror, a chance to see myself reflected back at me. So I'd feel less isolated and weird as a kid in the suburbs in the 1980s. But I found something so much more exciting. History is not a mirror. It is a window. And through it, I can see the long past leading us right to this moment. I can see where we are now and how we got queer. So to what extent, Hugh, when looking back at history, do you think this moment where we find ourselves right now was inevitable? Was the Internet, when, once the Internet introduced, was introduced, was reconsidering sex, sexuality, and gender unavoidable? I think yes. Now, how it actually played out specifically could have been changed, right? That was not inevitable. But I think that a major change in social relations, like I said, our identities are produced by the world we live in. If there is a major change like the internet, then queerness has to change. There's no not changing. Otherwise, to imagine that gay people have always existed exactly the same throughout history, across culturally, is to remove gay and trans and queer people from history entirely. To say that we do not change as the world changes, that we are instead, unlike everything else that exists, somehow permanent, unalterable. And that's ridiculous. We were going to change when the world changed, and we'll change again when the world changes again. I can't say exactly where it will go, and we'll use the same building blocks, right? Desire, gender, the body, but we'll constantly reconfigure them. Hugh, I cannot thank you enough for being on today's show. This is fascinating writing, and I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much. Expect me to annoy you in the future to come back on the show. (laughs) No, Chuck, this is great. Please, anytime. Thank you so much. I love talking about this stuff. All right. Thank you very much. I'll talk to you soon. Enjoy your weekend. You too. Have a great one. Bye. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell. So did Hugh blow your mind? Did you learn something new to add to your old ideas, improve upon them, and suddenly have new ideas on sex, sexuality, and gender? If so, please... Show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell, and tell us how our listeners are responding on our Welcome to the Hell Hole Facebook group page, please. 
This week's question from hell is, what makes you so special? Anyway, <laughs> I did an especially long pause Thank for you. you. Thank you. Um, we've got on Welcome to the Hell Hole, which is a really fun way to connect with the show. Uh, Krimsky Crackers says, I give up. Uh, Brianna <laughs> K says, I I'm Chuck's greatest great niece. That's what make, makes her special. Is that accurate? Uh, yeah, and I actually was the minister at her wedding. <laughs> so go figure. Uh, Universalist uh, church or uh, and Church of the Subgenius. I'm the uh, I'm a minister in a better. couple of churches. <laughs> Any church that will take fifty dollars, I will be a church in. I'll be a minister in. Martin F says I'm God's favorite sob. Oh, there you go. I mean son. <laughs> Uh, Leigh H. says, special education. Uh, Pete from Carrie's Lounge says, my mom said I'm special. Uh, Christine replies, is, is to which Christine replies her uh, actual uh, uh, Facebook name? or? Yeah, no, that's a, a Christine replied to it. Uh, oh, right, what I was her you. reply? Uh, no, your mom said you were cool, <laughs> not special. <laughs> Uh, Wojtek Radek, I think I'm pronouncing sure. that, that right, drawing on my Slavic roots. Uh, <laughs> I ride the short bus. Robert S., I overcame Catholic, quote, education, unquote. Bob Sim, uh, Bob S., sorry, Bob, I know I'm ordinary. Martin S., in Fight Club, I am not special. Only in death am I special. Let's not hope you get special soon there, Martin. Yeah. And Nick E., my sauce, to which Cheryl W. replies, I've got the sauce. <laughs> Whatever. And uh, Is little, that it? Uh, one more. Jed L., been listening to This Is Hell since forever. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it at us at thisishellradio. You can post it at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thisishell, or on our Discord, or you can email it to thisishellradio at gmail.com, but we must have your answer by the end of today's show. When we are announcing this week's winner following what's coming up next, Jeff Dorchin, The Moment of Truth, keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell. If you want to help us climb out of that debt, please become a subscriber to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. This week on Patreon, what if global peace is simply not profitable? What if there's more money to make through forever wars than you could ever make through endless peace? What if the slaughtering of humans and putting so much brain power into figuring out new and worse and easier ways to kill even more people. And more often than not, they are unarmed civilians, victims of war crimes, which, again, are the outcome of more profitable investments than anything you could ever make off of peace. What if we make all of those market-based decisions on war and peace? What happens in a world when we have bipartisan support for market-based solutions that all government and public-private solutions must make a profit. Find out tomorrow, Thursday, August 31st, by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Also on Patreon, after a week of villains profiting from police violence, big tech profiting from the toxic waste they create, and conservatives fearing the social contagion of new gender identities, 
that are not all that new, we wanted to share something that would give us all some hope. So I dialed up the Wayback Machine to 20 years ago and found an interview about the Zapatista. And then we realized the conversation did offer some hope, but it was also a reminder that, yes, this is hell. So we're sharing our August 23rd, 2003 interview from just a little over 20 years ago this week with John Ross, author of the book The War Against Oblivion, Zapatista Chronicles 1994 to 2000. John's counterpunch story, while Zapatistas shout Gora Escudi, Vicente Fox's government rounds up Mexican Basques and ships them to Osnar's torture chambers, which outlines the connection between the Zapatista movement in Mexico and their counterpart, the Basques of Spain. In fact, Gora Escuda means essentially, go Basque. And Osnar is the Spanish prime minister at the time who uh, was being, you know, there are allegations that he had torture chambers where people who were Basque were being tortured in Spain. Who knew that there was an alliance between the Basque and the Zapatista? Apparently we did 20 years ago. But the only way you can hear what happens when death is more profitable than life, war is more profitable than peace, and a 20-year-old talk on the little-known alliance between Zapatista and Basque revolutionaries is by becoming a Patreon patron at patreon.com slash this is hell if you do become a subscriber to this is hell on patreon you get all sorts of stuff including a special code word to get five dollars off each piece of our merchandise you get access to around 400 different patreon podcasts which are completely searchable so if there's a past interview that you've missed say something with noam chomsky or howard zinn or whoever you can just go to that site patreon.com slash this is hell search on that guest's name and you will find it right there including our interview with michael moore which had a great question from hell that's patreon.com slash this is hell. Coming up, I gotta unplug my jack, and now Jeff has to plug in his in the bottom one there. Coming up, Jeff with the moment of truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we will be announcing this week's winner. We'll also tell you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Now prove me wrong. This is hell. And I know you have Hefe not on the line, but ready to pot up because he's sitting right across from me. Let's hear it. The Miserable Falk, a Celt-ish tale. It was a she, was a he, was a they were a miserable sea felk. Swimming slippery in the weedy shallows, bobbing out deep amid the white-capped seas, looked down upon by the selkies, mermen, and loch monsters. Unlike their meadow-grazing cousins, the land felk, the sea felk are smallish, legless sea snakes covered with oily, dark brown fur. They are technically ungulates and ruminants, sea ruminants, who chew their cud, even though their food often consists of jellyfish, mussels, young herring or herringlings, and the large carcasses of pelagic creatures. So, not particularly pleasant cud, even by cud standards. The felk are often scavengers of sunken or floating corpses, and thus looked down upon by the other sea cryptids. 
A felk is technically a werefelk. Slippery dark brown fur snakes, that's what felk are, about the length of an average sea otter. But if they were to transform back from their furry state, they would be limp flesh tubes, swimming phallic sausages. But they don't transform back, they are always in their furry felk form. And the felk in question was miserable, like Lawrence Talbot as portrayed by Lon Chaney Jr. in The Wolfman. This one was a her at this point in her life. The sex of felk changes over their lifetimes, which are measured from when they first see the moon, before that they are felk larvae, proto-wear felk, milky-colored worms about the size of a forefinger, until the day they end their lives as felk and take on human form. How do the felk adopt the human form? By wearing it like a costume. When a felk is ready to metamorphosize, she slithers up the rock rivulets onto land. A felk can slither up a vertical cliff face with ease. But even this ability doesn't alleviate the felk's misery. All sea felk are miserable, and every last one of them has an excuse. But more on that later. Sea felk can not only slither up a vertical rock face, they can slither around on the underside of a rock overhang. Basically, they can crawl on the ceiling. Felk have this superpower and are still not cheerful. Cryptozoologists are mad frustrated about it. Are you familiar with the small anus ball? There's a Japanese river cryptid, the Kappa, which likes to steal the small anus ball out of human swimmers. The small anus ball is like the ball on a roll-on deodorant, and Japanese crypto-supernaturalists understand it as part of the human anatomy that seems to appear only when a Kappa wants to steal one. Like the kappa, the felk enters the human body through the anal aperture, which, lacking any anus ball, small nor large, allows ample ingress without the nose or eyes that could aid a human in detecting such an invasion and thus having a chance at thwarting it. Trousers cannot prevent the infiltration, and certainly not skirts nor the kilts frequently worn in the highlands. There is no anus ball, small nor large, when a felk sneaks up your hole. All they want to steal is your identity. The felk sneaks up your GI tract with its hairs branching out through your nerves and blood vessels. It uses you the way a hermit crab uses a new shell. Now, if you are a Scotsman, as you are likely to be, living so close to where the felk do their morose form of frolicking, you might be wearing a kilt. Such a garment notorious for lacking modest coverings of its wearer's undercarriages, offers even less resistance than usual to the entrance of the felk. And should said Scotsman be playing a sheepskin cephalopod known as the Great Highland Pipes, the felk is likely to pass through the labial embouchure of the piper, through the mouthpiece of the chanter and blowpipes, into the bag. From then on, the bagpipes are to be considered haunted. Most pipers testify to the superiority of haunted pipes, but double-blind experiments have failed to reach a definite conclusion. However, in the event the felk enters a non-piping alimentary canal and takes over the body and mind of its host rather than the host's musical instrument, then begins an attempt at social integration not always successful. And in the case of our miserable felk, let's give her the name Nellie, the results were predictably deplorable. Nellie entered through the outdoor of the digestive tract of a Scottish poet named Malcolm. Malcolm had already been given to fits of melancholy 
as befit a poet of no literary success, so much so he was known as Mopey Malcolm. Once possessed by Nellie the Felk, this melancholy nature took a shockingly obvious hard plunge forward into nihilistic negativity. Nellie herself had been miserable before as a werefelk, and now in her guise as a human, she found herself utterly disgusted with life and the world of human activity. She grew ever more introverted, as if that were going to alleviate her emotional suffering. Isolation only stoked her distaste for life. Luckily, the human world also offered a medical remedy for passively sinking into despair. Alcoholism. Is this all an allegory? Is the miserable Felk a metaphor for a lowly-born lumpen prole for whom an improvement in social status inflicts even more torture than the previous incarnation? No. This story is merely to illustrate that it is natural for the ranks of the discontented to grow. May they spread their bleak outlook throughout our species. Negativity moves humanity ever closer to rejecting the foolish pretension that things will ever be okay. There are a growing number who hold that humanity is a mistake. Even a swimming furry fecal eel, the Charlie Brown of the cryptid community, finds that inhabiting the world of a human Charlie Brown is even worse than life as its earlier self. The puka know it, the ancient werewolf who first bit the inaugural felk larva way back in the antique days, even before reality had been proposed, knew the curse that was being initiated, and yet all that is only aggravated by transforming from a brown furry worm into a human being. This story is merely an insult to the cosmic embarrassment that is the human species. Plainly and simply, it exists to derogate the Homo sapiens. Even though the storyteller finds himself in an unusually positive mood, facts must be faced. All would be better had we never stained this beautiful, violent, endlessly creative planet with our manipulations and desires. On some level, we all know it. This has been the Moment of Truth. Good day. You were fantastic as the MC last night oh, of Trivia you. Night at Carrie's Lounge, which happens on Tuesdays. Not, not every Tuesday. It happens every so often on Tuesdays. You can find out more by going to Carrie's, Lounge, Carrie's Lounge's website, carrieslounge.com, because their Facebook page got hacked, and so uh, you can't <laughs> find anything there. But, uh, yeah, you did a great job last night. That was, a, that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun, and Pete had a lot of fun, which is more important which is really. always good to see always good to see all right jeffy i know you got a plane to catch i do have a plane to catch but i'm gonna have to uh come back in here and edit this when you're done but all right get the hell out of here i'm still gonna take my leave of you all right good, good day live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people as i found out that that's the correct pronunciation not Potawatomi. this is hell so if you live near Potawatomi park go over there and fix that to bad Owatomi Park. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want that is currently available at thisishell.com when you click on support. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell, and do we have any more answers or not? I think we've uh, read them all. through them, but uh, just a reminder, it's what makes you so special anyway. <laughs> the answers I like the most. We're on Patreon. Uh, Andy saying the way I cope with my powerlessness. That's pretty good. Uh, Jeff saying absolutely nothing. I may be abnormal, but I'm not special. Fabio saying I listen to This Is Hell. Old Grouch saying what makes him special is, oh, this is harsh, 
I am white. It has kept me out of prison and in good jobs all my life. I didn't earn it. I tried to turn it down and succeeded sporadically. I have only begun to understand it in my 70s. This truly is hell. On Discord, Kim G saying dog treats. Uradov saying my eyebrows look a little weird. Uh, Mo Hypersane on Twitter saying my dearest friends. Over on Facebook, I liked Andrew S. saying I turn all my haters into waiters when I sit at the table of success. John T. saying that my upstairs neighbor stormed in and then fell into dead silence. What should I do? I hope those things have been resolved, John. Uh, Doug M. saying the last person who asked that got me tooed. David Z saying, Dunno. I mean, I am the center of the universe. And Roy saying, I'm not, or Roy. Ray saying, I'm not Chuck. And a few of those on, hell, on Welcome to the Hellhole were pretty good as well. Uh, Martin saying, I'm God's favorite SOB. I mean, son. Uh, Robert S saying, I overcame a Catholic education. Uh, Bob S saying, I know I'm ordinary. Uh, so a lot of really good uh, responses this week. I got a couple in mind. Dan, is there any that really sticks out to you as your favorite this week? Uh, I think uh, all of them they're, that you mentioned are Yeah, they're all pretty good. The top, uh, I'm, I'm going to go. I, I, this might be offensive. Yeah. So my favorite answer to this week's question from hell, what's, what makes you so special anyway? I'm going to go with Doug M. saying the last person who asked that got me tooed. That might be a really... I, I held back yeah. from voicing it, but I thought that's the best one. I know, I know, and I feel bad about saying it, but I do think it's the best answer to the question from hell this week. Congratulations, Doug M. You are the winner of this week's question from hell. All you have to do is just uh, send us an email telling us which piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want with your mailing address, and we'll get it into the mail to you post-haste. My answer to this week's question from hell, so what makes you so special anyway? In that context, special means I'm necessarily better, greater, or otherwise different from what is usual, if that's the context that special is in in this question, and knowing that I'm not better or greater in any way, but I am, quote-unquote, otherwise different, which sounds like a census category, what makes me special is why they wanted to put me in special education classes, and that is I'm legally blind with a very rare condition that causes me to not have any color vision whatsoever, uh, to be hypersensitive to light, to have limited depth perception and vision that is what might be understood as 2200 vision, which is not correctable by glasses. And if my physical deficiency is the only thing that makes me special, that's kind of sad and pathetic, which means it's probably going to be a future Patreon monologue. Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from Al Dan, who is our confirmed guest for next week. We're going to have Lisa M. Corrigan, who wrote the Nation article. The Esser, I've always had trouble with that, with that word. Evisceration. Evisceration. Yes. Of a public university, West Virginia University is being gutted. And it's a preview for what's in store for higher education. Lisa's a professor of communication and director of gender studies at the University of Arkansas. And we'll have Seb Vuper with another uh, Pass Inside the Present. We'll have This Week in Rotten History from Ronaldo Magaldi. Jeff Dorchin will be delivering another moment of truth. And a uh, huge thank you to this week's producers, Dan Kugler, 
Will Ippen. Thanks to Sebastian Ronaldo and Jeff, and to Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry Theron Humiston, Dan Hill, and Pete Valavanis, just because. Talk to you tomorrow, Thursday, on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, when I will consider what happens when war is more profitable than peace. And we'll be sharing a 20-year-old conversation on the little-known alliance between Mexico's Zapatista and Spain's Basque independence movement. This is how office hours, our meet and greet, that's really a drink and think, are happening tonight, Wednesday, beginning around 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. It's supposed to be a beautiful night for drinking in the beer garden, so look for me out back. There's only one way to get over all of this week's problems that we've shared with you on the show. That's to sit down in the lotus position. Turn your palms towards the sky. Focus on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and say the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.